beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? We are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's Song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, back with you again today. I'm a UCC pastor here in this place currently called Buffalo, New York, in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee and Erie peoples. I'm the faith coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally, and this podcast is a project of SURGE faith and is particularly designed for white people, white people talking to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe white people like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We'd love to hear from you, and especially from folks of color, about how we're doing. The word is resistance. Well, it seems winter has come to this part of the earth. This week we had a bit of snow. Today is really gorgeously sunny, but on Sunday we had enough ice to actually have to cancel church. And I'm a southerner, remember, and so I'm grateful to never have to drive on ice. We used the unexpected homestay on Sunday to put up our Advent and Christmas decorations after I had a two-hour nap on the couch snuggled up with our cat. I ended up feeling a bit tenderhearted as we sensed the space in our new home, wondering where we would put what. Try this here. Oh, and will this fit here? What do we do with this now? And is that still packed in a box? And I realized I was missing our old home in Denver and how pretty it was, all dressed up for this time of year. Oh, right, I felt. Everything has changed. Jesus will go over here now, and the angel's there, And it's beautiful. And it's all different. Everything has changed. I think our culture's hyper-positive emphasis on perpetual light and shiny wrapped boxes of empty joy at this time of year is hard. It's hard on the heart. Especially when it feels like everything has changed. Like the world is coming to an end. Like maybe the world actually has ended and we're in the aftermath, struggling to know how to survive. Our Advent texts know a lot about that, about the end of the world and its aftermath. So why don't we take a breath together and see what John the Baptist at the River Jordan might have to teach us. Breathe.
When I checked on my texts for this week, I had to laugh because in my last podcast, I got to talk about locusts too. Last time, it was a locust army of imperial destruction. Today, locusts are John's lunch while he hollers about repentance and axes and fire and winnowing. Here's the reading from Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestors, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I always joke that brood of vipers is proof that there's cussing in the Bible. But really, this scene is no laughing matter. John's language is harsh and even insulting, and has been used throughout Christian history to designate believers and non-believers as the wheat and the chaff, an interpretation that has caused an immense amount of harm as the theological underpinning of Christian violence, both spiritual and physical, against all those deemed chaff. We can make a long list, of course, but the point I want to make is how this text has been used to separate, to divide us from one another. Well, that's how the text reads, isn't it? The axe is lying at the root of the tree, you brood of vipers. I wonder, though, if you've listened to the word is resistance long enough, you know I am always asking this. What if this text doesn't mean what we think it means? We have piled so much meaning on these texts, so much theologizing and polemicizing, assuming that it means what those in power have told us it means, that I am always asking, who does this traditional interpretation serve? Or more precisely, whose power does it serve? And so here in this bit of Matthew, I want to ask that question of two things. The presence of Pharisees and Sadducees, and the wrath that is coming. Now, as Christians, we tend to lump Pharisees and Sadducees together, both as basically the same thing and as equally bad compared to Jesus. We have been taught that Pharisees are antithetical to Christians, 
that they are hypocrites and concerned only with following the letter of a very burdensome law. Pharisees are held up as everything Christians should try not to be, as the opponents to Jesus' teaching. In some ways, it's not hard to come to that conclusion when the Gospels are often very anti-Pharisee. Matthew's Gospel, for example, gets really nasty the longer it goes on. The trouble with that is that eventually, Pharisees and Sadducees are also the Jews who didn't become Christians. And so the supposed opponents of Jesus then become the opponents of Christianity. It's like everybody forgot about Rome. The Jewish movements of this time period are admittedly complicated to sort through. And we don't have a lot of evidence about these different groups, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Jesus followers, and even other groups, including a group called the Sicarii, who actually murdered Roman leaders with knives. And a lot of what we have is like the Gospels, portraying the supposed opponent in a very negative light. But what we do know is that what we as Christians have been taught about Pharisees in particular has been deeply problematic and led to all kinds of violence. Pharisees deeply respected the Torah and also deeply respected the tradition that expanded upon the Torah to fill in what the Torah did not seem to teach, which they also saw as being faithful to Torah. And part of what they believed was that everyone, not just the priests of the Jerusalem temple, could and perhaps even should perform priestly rituals regarding food preparation, agriculture, and purity. Dr. Pamela Eisenbaum describes this as a democratized understanding of cultic piety, reflecting a kind of priesthood of all believers. A position which makes a lot of sense when your people are constantly living in and out of exile and diaspora far from the temple if it hasn't been destroyed. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the priests of the Jerusalem temple and others who thought those rituals only pertained to the temple. They weren't the same as the Pharisees, even though they often get lumped together. I also want to add that Pharisees were found throughout Jewish communities, and some of them even seemed to be friends with Jesus, part of his community. And Pharisees could be found resisting Roman oppression in a variety of ways, including tearing Roman imperial eagle iconography out of the Jerusalem temple. Oh yeah, Rome. We must never forget that the actual threat to Jesus' community, to the Jewish community, was Rome. As I have said before and will continually remind us, Rome's violent oppression of the Jewish people is palpable throughout the Gospels, including Matthew. I'm going to disagree a bit with my beloved colleague and friend, Nicola, who last week likened the Pharisees to the white moderates and liberals who don't get it, who are the ones Reverend Dr. King talks to in his letter from a Birmingham jail. For me, this is to forget that Jews under Roman imperial occupation did not have the political power that white people do in the U.S. White folks are the Romans in the New Testament, not Jewish folks of whatever practice. For me, the reminder from post-colonial biblical scholar Musa Dube is helpful when Dube reminds us that these different Jewish groups we see in the Gospels, Jesus followers, John followers, Pharisees, Sadducees, 
These are all overlapping movements trying to figure out how to survive under Roman imperial occupation. And we need to remember that we are dealing with multiple historical layers here in the stories they left behind. An accounting of what happened during the timeline of Jesus' lived life, the trauma left on the skin of the community looking back telling the story, and the utter devastation of the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in 70 CE, which the Gospels are also trying to make meaning of. As the commentary in the Jewish Annotated New Testament notes of Matthew's Gospel, following this tragic event in which thousands of Jews were killed or exiled, the survival of Judaism was in doubt. The conflict inherent in Matthew may reflect this competition for survival. So here are the survivors trying to figure out what to do to live, trying to figure out what from their traditions they can hold on to for help. And they don't always agree on the best ways to do any of that. But sometimes they do. you to flee from the wrath to come. Every commentator and preacher I've ever heard or read assumes that wrath here means God's wrath, God's judgment, thus the need for repentance, so we don't get thrown in the fire. But John the Baptist doesn't say it's God's wrath that is coming. What we actually know is coming, what had come before, which perhaps John and Jesus suspected was coming again, which for Matthew's community had already come, was the wrath of Rome. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What if wrath here means Rome's, not God's? Rome's destruction of Judea and Jerusalem in 70 CE did not come out of nowhere. Jewish folks in Judea were resisting all the time. It's why Pilate made sure to camp out in Jerusalem on the regular. There were revolts against taxes, removal of Roman iconography forced onto temple walls, mass strikes protesting unjust labor conditions, and efforts to regain their independence. All of this was happening prior to, during, and after Jesus' lifetime. The wrath of Rome in crushing these liberating efforts was real and well-known. And just like now, communities did not always agree about their best response to that wrath. What difference does it make to our understanding of this story if the wrath is not God's, but Rome's? What if, as Warren Carter argues, the Gospel of Matthew condemns Roman imperial violence and the structures and belief systems that violence upholds while outlining strategies for community survival. Maybe that's why John is at the Jordan River, that site of crossing over into freedom after generations of enslavement in Egypt. Maybe that's why people came there, kept coming there, to be washed in freedom waters, to let the river carry away the ways they had been bought into empire, the ways they had strayed away from God's way. 
Maybe that's the good fruit, letting the freedom water transform them into freedom fighters. And maybe the rotten tree is Rome. Maybe good fruit is how an oppressed people survive. Survive long after Rome is dead, because remember, the Jewish people are still here. And maybe John is saying, I'm washing you into freedom. And another is coming who has survival skills we need, the survival heart we need. And it's time to make a choice. Wheat or chaff? Good fruit or rotten tree? The wrath of Rome is always coming. Are you ready? Are you in? Will you wade in the freedom waters? And look, look who is here. Look who is wading in the freedom waters. So many people from Jerusalem, from Judea, from everywhere, and Pharisees and Sadducees, all wading in the freedom waters. Which, just to be clear, nobody here is being baptized as Christians because that's not a thing that existed yet. No, something different is happening here, coming to the Jordan to be washed in freedom, getting baptized, which is to say, getting ready. And yes, sometimes they will argue. Do we strike? Do we damage property? Do we march? Do we change things from the inside or burn it all down or build alternatives outside the system? We don't always agree. Freedom movements are messy and complicated. But when we take the time to let Pharisees and Sadducees be fully human, then we recognize they are standing right in that water with John. And when we keep clear on who the opponent is, Rome, not the Pharisees, Rome's wrath, not God's, then we can recognize they are all there together. They are all there together, united in purpose, washed in the freedom waters. Advent begins with the end of the world. That's where the lectionary always starts us off, with the end of the world. Just like last week with Matthew's Jesus describing the destruction of the temple and warmongerings of Rome that is coming. This week we go back in time to John the Baptist, sensing the end of the world is at hand and baptizing people in the freedom waters to get them ready for the wrath to come. The wrath that, in fact, has already come as Rome crushes revolt after rebellion, after strike, and will come again in the final, supposedly final, defeat of Jerusalem. In all my 49 years of life of reading and hearing this Bible story, I have never, not once, until this week, realized that the Pharisees and Sadducees were here being baptized by John, just like Jesus will in the verses immediately following this week's text. I'm still sitting with all the many ways this realization unravels what Christianity has taught me and how we interpret these stories. Maybe you are too. 
What I want us to remember here at the end of the world when it feels like everything has changed, like the world is coming to an end, like maybe the world has actually ended and we're in the aftermath, struggling to know how to survive. What I want us to remember is that freedom movements are complicated and messy, and we don't always agree about what it will take to survive, about how we going how about uh, how we go about building up a new world. What I want us to remember here at the end of the world is that we need to pay attention to who is in the freedom waters ready to be baptized. The wrath of Rome is coming and everybody wading into that Jordan River knows it. And wading in, they are making their choice. Good fruit or rotten tree? Wheat or chaff? They are making their choice. They are declaring their allegiance. John the locust eater, Judeans and Jerusalem dwellers, Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus the healer and organizer, all of them. All of them. And the truth is, all of them are needed to survive the wrath of Rome. Here at the end of the world, we do not have time to point fingers at each other and play purity politics. Who actually has Abraham as an ancestor while the wrath of Rome is coming? We ignore the Pharisees and Sadducees showing up in this story to our peril, I think. Because if we are going to survive the end of the world, we need as many of us as possible willing to wade into the freedom waters, willing to choose good fruit and wheat. This doesn't mean we can't be principled, that we have to just let anything go. But division weakens our movements, makes our impact smaller. And we end up spending so much energy blaming those alongside us for the troubles of the world rather than focusing all our energy on resisting and dismantling Rome. I don't have a super clever call to action for us today, but I want us to pay attention to how this dynamic of who's most woke, who's most radical, who's a brood of vipers, shows up in movement work. Maybe it's in the way your church is hesitant to be associated with anti-fascists, which I just have to say would be the folks tearing Rome's eagles down, so let's just sit with that for a minute. Maybe it's in how we dismiss some activists for being confrontational when we're the peaceful ones. Maybe it's how we blame the South or working class white folks for the trouble we find ourselves in now. How is this dynamic showing up in the spaces where you're organizing? And once you notice it, how can you counter it? What ways are there of building common cause rather than throwing each other under the bus. How convenient it was for Rome, especially as Rome increasingly assimilated Christianity, that the Pharisees became the problem in our stories and not the violence of Rome itself. Let's try not to make that mistake again. Because all of us are needed to survive the wrath of Rome. Thanks as always for joining me from wherever you are on this good earth. Let us know how your action goes. We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages. Next week, we have a new contributor joining us, Jean Jeffress, who will have a resistance word for us for December 15th.
You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on the word is resistance. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to our podcast. Transcripts are available on our website always, which include references, resources, and action links. And finally, a huge thanks as always to our sound editor this week, Maxwell Pearl. Advent blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. Yeah.